Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Well, keep your Bibles open at Isaiah chapter 9. No, thanks. Um, we'll be spending our time in there today. We're in a series on this uh, great book, The Prince of Prophets, as Isaiah uh, is sometimes known. Uh, I wanna, this week I had, had some training in counseling, and the guy who was doing the training um, started out by painting a scenario and a picture that it elicited some interesting responses from the people in the audience. Let me share it with you and see how you would react to this. You've got a really important job interview. It's your dream job, and you've waited for years for this opportunity. But on the big day, you're running late. You've just hit some delays. You're too worried about what you're going to wear, and you leave the house too late, mostly because your housemate or spouse, just at the minute when you're about to leave, decides that they want to download their problem and talk to you about it. So you're, you're running out of the house late. You're starting to panic. You get to the car and you start breaking the speed limit, going around corners on two wheels, that sort of thing. But soon, traffic grinds to a halt. And there you are, you're not even moving anymore. The road has turned into a car park. You reach for your mobile phone and you realize that in the panic to leave the house, you left the phone inside. So here you are, you've got no way of getting there on time and no way of contacting anyone. And all you can do is sit there watching that little clock on the dashboard as it ticks closer and closer to the time of the interview and you're thinking about the panel sitting there in the room and you're not there and you never will be. As the moment passes, you have blown it. Now, how would you feel? How would you be reacting in the car at that moment? What kind of facial expressions, words, maybe some hand gestures would you be making? In fact, just deeper than that, what would be going on inside as you saw the opportunity slip away? Now, some people said they would be angry. They would be raging at the council for doing roadworks this time of year again. And why is there never anybody working on the roads? And they'd be hitting the steering wheel and being angry. Angry at, the, at my housemate or my spouse. Angry at yourself. Oh, I've done it again. Cross. Other people said they would feel self-loathing. It was as if a tape would start to play, a very old tape... By the way, tapes were the things before MP3s. Yeah. And an old tape playing. And, and the tape's in there, and it's actually there all the time in your subconscious. You just don't always hear it. And it says this, you're such an idiot. You always screw things up. You are bound to be a failure. Here you are again. Some people said they would feel a sick feeling of fear. As if all their strength and confidence just kind of drained away. Sense of rising panic, shortness of breath, anxiety, just feeling really weak and feeble inside. Others, including my colleague who was with me at the training, would, would exert strong tendencies to control the situation. Their internal world would kind of go into overdrive, thinking about, how can I fix it? How would you feel? Well, one thing you are not feeling at that moment is peace, unless you're medicated. 
Other situations, a friend or a family member who is sharply critical of you and of things that you hold dear, they treat you with contempt. And it is not fair, and everyone can see it except them, but they will not apologize or even acknowledge your point of view. And you feel crushed. You actually feel wounded, cut to the core. You feel sort of like you've been stung. And then, inside, you kind of start to build up some scar tissue. And part of you goes really hard and really cold against that person. Okay, I've forgiven them, but they're not going to be my friend anymore. Or another situation, a senior colleague who is a bully. He creates a culture of aggression and fear. Whenever he walks into the room, people go on edge. He exercises control by making others look silly and small. And he can cut you down to that size with a word. And he brings you untold stress. Not just in the workplace, it spreads out into the rest of life. In fact, sometimes you, can't even, you feel you can't even face going into work. Now, what do all those situations have in common? Uh, the Bible says the problem is we don't have shalom. Shalom. We need shalom, and we don't have it. The Beatles got it wrong. All you need is shalom. And you're thinking, okay, I don't even know what that means. What is shalom? It's a Hebrew word, and you might have heard Jewish people using it as a greeting, or I'm sure you've heard uh, Muslim people greeting one another with the words salam alaikum. And salam and shalom are from the same family of words, and they mean pretty much the same thing. It means peace. Peace. But the English word peace only captures a part of the meaning of shalom. So that's why I'm going to stick with this word for a minute. When we speak about peace, we mean the end of hostility. We mean if two nations are at peace, they're not fighting each other. But that's sort of passive. Peace just means the absence of hostility. But shalom is richer and deeper and broader. Shalom means welfare, wholeness, and peace. Shalom, the root idea is putting back together something that's been divided, bringing it back together. So it means social integration. Society being whole and well and functioning beautifully. It means personal integration so that you feel at ease with yourself and comfortable with who you are and fulfilled and have a sense of well-being. All of that is bound up in this wonderful word, shalom. And that is what we crave. We crave it for our society. We crave it for ourselves to be at peace with myself and with my fellow neighbor. Wouldn't that be good? Now, the prophet Isaiah is passionate about shalom. It's a major theme that runs all through his book. He uses this word, shalom, more than any other writer in the Bible except Jeremiah. He cares about shalom. He loves it. He yearns for it because he lived in a time when there was none, and he yearned for a better tomorrow. Now, as we learned last week, Isaiah's ministry was in the southern kingdom, which was called Judah, and even the words southern kingdom should make us put up a red flag and tell us that there's a shalom problem going on. Because God had created a people for himself and he called them to belong to him in a special way and he'd given them a particular vocation. They were to live lives of great holiness, purity, moral beauty. And in that way they were to be like a lighthouse 
a model to the world around so that all the nations could see the good life of living under the rule of the good God. They were to be a community of light. But they'd quarreled and fallen out and followed false gods. And ten of the tribes had actually broken off and gone off to form a northern kingdom, which confusingly is called Israel. The whole thing originally was Israel, but now it's north and south, and the southern part is called Judah. Now, Judah was a small player in the political world of the ancient Near East. On one side, the sort of southwest side, was Egypt, which is a superpower, but growing far away to the east was an even more scary superpower known as Assyria. And then, all around them were these smaller nations who were very aggressive and hostile and wanted to take, out, take their country over. And as Jez taught last week, and it was absolutely brilliant, if you didn't hear it, please check it out on the website. Jez taught us that Isaiah challenged the king of the country to trust God and not try and do a deal with one of these superpowers. But the king refused to trust God. He refused to listen to the word of the prophet, and he decided to do a deal. He went the route of pragmatism. He tried to make a deal with Assyria. Now that was like a mouse trying to do a deal with a cat. You know that deal isn't going to work out well for the mouse. But that lack of peace that they were in in the political world was also personal. The people were divided in their own hearts. They were self-serving. They neglected the poor and the needy. They feathered their own nest. Their relationships were full of conflict rather than peace. And so they did not have shalom. Just listen to this description, will you? Just before the passage that Chris read, there in chapter 8, let's read it from uh, verse 21. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, They will become enraged and looking upwards will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Wow. That's the condition of human beings without God. Alienated from him. Without God and without hope in the world, in the dark, roaming, kind of homeless, disconnected, hating God and each other, and looking up and cursing and looking down and seeing only darkness. And Isaiah says, that's where you're going to end up if you reject the good God. But that's not the end of the story, because there is glorious hope. And this passage, which is usually read at Christmas, holds out that hope in the most beautiful way. Isaiah says, it doesn't have to be like this, you know. It can change. No, even more than that, it will change. It's a promise, a promise of peace from the living God, a promise of peace. Now, Isaiah, as we've commented on before, he's a prophet and he's a poet. He kind of soars with lyrical imagery and beautiful uh, language and ideas. He's not a lawyer or a very, a very, an engineering type of person. No disrespect to all engineers and lawyers present. Um, he's more of a sort of a, a, a singer, songwriter, poet kind of character. And he paints this great picture. He says, there's this people, they're walking around in the darkness and suddenly they see a great light. It's like the lights came on and they're illuminated. They're living in the land of deep darkness, but the light dawns. You know, when it's a glorious sunrise, all the colors come up see the world around beautiful day and he says 
that God will enlarge the nation and make them grow again and increase their joy, joy, unspeakable joy, and they will rejoice before God like people rejoicing at harvest time, the hungry who reap the harvest and eat the good that God has given them, or like warriors who've won a battle and they get to divide up the spoils. And these are images of things that you have to wait for. You have to wait for the harvest. You have to wait to win the battle. You have to struggle through. And then when it comes, it's all the more sweet because of the wait. Uh, delayed gratification, something we often try and teach our children. Now, Isaiah says that this time, this promise of peace, will be not just national, but global. He says that the government and peace will grow greatly. The old version, which I think, Chris, you nearly slipped into saying, was the increase of government and peace will never end. It will fill the whole world until everything is at peace. Rich peace, shalom kind of peace. Isaiah says even you know, military hardware like warriors' boots and swords and spears, they'll be burned up and, and turned into something else because they don't need them anymore. Fuel for the fire. The yoke that used to burden you, was heavy, holding you down and oppressing you, will be broken. You'll stand free, walk tall. Promise of peace. Over in chapter 11, he, he, he says a similar prophecy, talking about the same thing. He uses these amazing words. In that day, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. Sounds like Australia. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A place where there's no harm. When our Australian friends, Rich and Cherie, moved over to Manchester, we took them to a park. And in the park, Old Moat Park, there are patches with really long grass and, and tall plants. And they looked at it very nervously and said, is it okay for kids to go in there in this country? And we were saying, yeah, it's okay. Because in Australia, you wouldn't dare go in the long grass. It's the first thing they teach them at school, isn't it? What is it, long grass? What's the saying? Long grass equals snakes. Long grass equals snakes. I don't know how I managed to forget that. <laughs> Here you've got Isaiah saying, a little child, you, you'll get Colin. You just put him down next to the viper's nest and he'll reach his hand in and wriggle it around. There'll be no harm. The lion will lie down with the lamb. As Woody Allen said, the lamb won't get much sleep. But in the new creation, in this world, this vision, this promise of peace, it will because there's no harm anymore. It's at peace. It's a rich shalom kind of peace. What would that feel like? The world as it really ought to be. But some of you are thinking, that won't work here. This will never happen. It is impossible. It's foolish. You're thinking it's a pipe dream. It's just wishful thinking. It's what religious people do. They project their hopes and dreams and say that God told them. Now, in some ways, I, I get that, and I would be inclined to agree with you. A number of years ago, I was working in 
executive recruitment, and we were headhunting to find a new chief executive for a leading charity. I won't name it. This charity is recognized as the world leaders in the field of conflict resolution. In times of war, tribal conflict, this charity will send people in who mediate and, and create resolution and reconciliation between other groups. They are the world experts in conflict resolution. But here's the funny thing. Internally, they were the most conflicted organization we ever worked with. Working with them was a nightmare. Everyone wanted to have their own way. So even the experts at conflict resolution are conflicted. <laughs> I would be inclined to agree with you. This is wishful thinking. But for one thing, it's the person who makes this happen. The person who fulfills the promise of peace. And he's called the Prince of Peace. There's my second point. The Prince of Peace. Look with me again at verses 6 and 7. Look at the four titles that are used of this person. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called, here's the titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is how shalom will come. Through this child. Because of a child, world peace will not be achieved by a convention of world leaders having peace talks. It won't be resolved by the formation of some sort of global NATO or EU multinational agency. Peace will not be achieved by us all joining hands and singing, I'd like to teach the world to sing. Peace will come because of the child. This child will be a son, and it says the government will be upon his shoulders. That means he will shoulder responsibility. He will lead, he will bear rule for global peace and leadership. Notice the shoulders. In verse 4, it says um, uh, that God will shatter the yoke that burdens the people, the bar across their shoulders. So there's the people and their shoulders are sort of hunched down because they're, they're, they're enslaved and they've got this yoke like a, a, a cow that's being yoked into, into service. And Across their shoulders is a bar, but he says, this, God will come and, s s it's like a ninja, you know, smash the bar. Wah! And the shoulders, the other shoulders are the child's shoulders, that he will carry the government. So this child has got pretty big shoulders, hasn't he? Now Isaiah is making a prediction here, a divinely inspired prediction. He doesn't have a precise date name or time, but God reveals to him the character of this child's rule with these four titles. Firstly, Wonderful Counselor. Now, we all know how critical the decisions of leaders are. Leaders can create prosperity or they can create disaster. Think about those who led this country and other countries into the First World War. What a decision they made. And so much conflict comes about because of the folly of leaders. Think of all the conflicts of the last hundred years alone. Foolish. Our leaders are often arrogant, proud, domineering, and ignorant, but not this child. He will, he's a wonderful counselor. He will give wise 
counsel. He is unfailing in the depth of his wisdom and insight. Now, the phrase literally means a supernatural counselor or one who gives supernatural advice. It's beyond the natural, beyond what we can come up with ourselves. There's something supernatural about his wisdom. It's beyond the merely human. The second title is Mighty God. Now, this is getting a bit weird, isn't it? We just heard that the child, there's going to be a child who's born in the normal way, yet here he seems to be called God. He's being associated with the divine. Now, scholars have debated this back and forth because wherever else the phrase mighty God is used in the Bible, it refers to God himself, funnily enough. So how can Isaiah be talking about an obviously human child and yet call him mighty God at the same time? At this stage, it's a mystery. But the picture is beginning to fill out. He's a child, but a person, a human, but he will have the power, the strength of almighty God. God, power so great that it can deal with all the violence and evil and conflict in the world. Power to restore and put us back together. Power of God. Now look at those first two titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Those are the things you would need if you were going to be able to bring about world peace. Thirdly, he has the title Everlasting Father. Now in the ancient world, many kings called themselves Father. It was a, a, a kind of a standard practice to say that they were the father to their people. But in Israel, the king was not normally referred to as father because they knew that the father of their nation was God. And God was a good father who's concerned for the helpless. He cared for his people. He administered loving discipline. Now, Isaiah says, the rule of this child is going to be like the everlasting father. His rule is like that of God himself. It's everlasting. goes on forever. There's no end to it. And if you think about it, that's what would be needed if we were going to ever have shalom. Because there couldn't be an upheaval and another change with a new ruler coming and bringing a whole new set of conflicts. It needs to be stable, absolutely stable. Peace going on forever. Fourthly, he's the prince of peace. And this title sort of sums all of the rest of them up. What kind of king is this child? He's, he's a king of peace. His reign is characterized by peace. He doesn't come brutally crushing all opponents. He comes in transparent vulnerability. And he makes defiance pointless. He's the prince of shalom. And as you know by now, Shalom means a lot more than just cessation of hostilities. It means well-being, health, goodwill, harmony, wholeness, fulfillment, freedom from anxiety, wholeness, welfare, and peace, putting things back together, social, personal integration. Now, I want to live in a world like that, don't you? I want to live in a world like that. And Isaiah tells me that I can because of this child. Because of this child. So that just leaves, leaves us with one obvious question. Who's the child? I think some of you have guessed the answer. It's like the Sunday school teacher. You know, he says, now children, what's small, grey, furry, has a bushy tail and hides nuts in the ground? 
And the kids go, well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it really sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> you know the answer. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah didn't know that. In fact, later on in the Bible, it says that even prophets longed to look into these things, but they were reserved for us. Even prophets, even the greatest prophet, didn't know Jesus. But he did know that God would do it all. Look at the end of verse 7, how he, he kind of summarizes how it's all going to come about. He says, The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty. Zeal is love mixed with anger. Love for the person and anger at everything that enslaves them and diminishes them and takes away their joy and their freedom. It's actually love mixed with hatred. Zeal is burning, fiery, passionate. It will set the person free. And this word zeal was one that characterized the Lord Jesus Christ. At one point, he actually quoted a verse that says, zeal for your house will consume me. He was consumed with zeal. He was a passionate, fiery, and self-controlled savior. But you might be thinking, well, if Jesus came to bring peace, how come there's still so much conflict? If he came to bring peace, 2,000 years have passed, how come we still have so many conflicts? And that is a real issue and question. It has led many people to reject the claims of the Christian faith. It leads to the skeptical person thinking that Jesus has failed, like every other religious leader. And Isaiah's promise then would kind of seem another piece of religious wish projection. And that's why we need a divine perspective. A divine perspective. Let me just share with you three perspectives from God's point of view, as we find out in the Bible. God's timeline, God's patience, and God's methods. God's timeline. The Apostle Peter says that, uh, quotes the, the Old Testament, and he says, to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So from God's point of view, standing outside of time, and God is bigger than the universe, and he, he sustains all things by his own power, and he, he orders things so that they happen in the right way at the right time. He orders the rising and falling of nations and the conception of children in the womb. In God's perspective, a thousand years is like a day. So how long has passed since Jesus Christ lived died, rose, and ascended. From God's point of view, two days. <laughs> two days have passed. And in that time, nations have rise, risen and fallen. And the world now has two billion people who would call themselves Christians in some shape or form. God's timeline. We might think that Jesus hasn't done what he said he was going to do, but he's doing it all the time. A thousand years is like a day. Secondly, God's patience. Why does God wait so long? Apostle Peter says it's because he's patient. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to faith and to trust him. You see, when God comes back to put everything to rights, when Jesus returns to judge the world with, with justice, he will judge everyone that's still alive. He will judge the world. And the Bible says that God is waiting and giving time so that more and more people can turn to him. 
Millions of people are turning to him every year now, but I think the best is yet to come. Because the Bible says that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, like the waters covering the sea. That's pretty full. Revelation says that around the throne in heaven will be people from every tribe and every ethnic group, and every language group, and every nation. Now that job isn't done. There are now Christians in every nation in the world, but there are many unreached people groups. This is why we try and focus our mission work on the unreached peoples, those who don't have a chance of hearing about Jesus. God is patient. He's giving time for the word to get out. And thirdly, God's method. His kingdom comes through patient witness, through joyful sacrifice, and through personal transformation. It's not really a top-down kingdom, as we would perhaps do it in, in a political way, but a grassroots movement that influences and changes the world from the bottom up. God's timeline, God's patience, God's method. And that means that we can be part of the peace process. You can be part of the peace process. What does Isaiah's vision have to do with you and me on Monday morning? When you roll out of bed, change somebody's nappy, go to a toddler group, when you, you roll out of bed, make your way into the office, or if you're a student, make your way in in the afternoon. <laughs> Seriously, when you're stuck in that traffic jam, and there you are again in, behind the wheel, what difference does it make to the, the conflicted heart that is either angry or self-loathing or afraid? or desperate to control. What difference does it mean, does it make that there's a promise of peace and a prince of peace to you on Monday morning? What difference does it make when you get that, that crushing criticism from that person who treats you with contempt? You see an email from them, you see a text from them, and your whole heart sinks. In fact, you feel you just want to run away. What difference does it make if you know the prince of peace? What difference does it make when that bully walks into the workplace and starts to throw his weight around again? Let me put the question a different way. How does knowing Jesus, the Prince of Peace, make us into people of peace? How does knowing Jesus make us into people of peace? Because it should do. Here's how. Jesus brings peace Jesus achieves shalom by subverting all the usual ways that people exercise power. Let me say it again. Jesus achieves peace by subverting, turning upside down, all the usual ways that people exercise power. He was and is the wonderful counselor, his wise insight, but his greatest victory looks like foolishness. It's the cross. Apostle Paul writes, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It looks like folly. He turns the wisdom of the world on its head. He was mighty God, but he humbled himself to become a human, to become a servant, even to death on a cross. He takes his power and he becomes weak for our sakes. 
He was the everlasting father in the sense that he's the king of kings whose rule will never end, not to be confused with God the Father, but the everlasting one submitted to death. There was a point where the everlasting one died. God was crucified. And he rose again to conquer death and to guarantee a new future for everyone who's accepted in him. His life will never end. Probably the most radical claim in the Christian faith is the resurrection of the body. He was the Prince of Peace, and his solution to the violence of this world was to submit himself to it in sacrifice at the cross. Now, when you know somebody like that, when you submit to following a God like that, it will give you the resources to live like him. Stuck in the traffic jam, failing to get to the interview. Why should I fear? Why should I rage because I'm out of control? Why should I fear other people's disapproval when the one who made all things loves me and gave himself for me? Why should I fear? Crushing criticism. Do you know what the the good news tells you? First of all, the good news is bad news. You know you are deeply corrupt. You're wicked and sinful to the core. You're twisted and iniquitous, and actually you deserve to be crushed. You don't deserve better, but Jesus Christ was crushed for you. And now you're accepted in him. You're accepted in the beloved one. And that means that I can see through the meanness and the small-mindedness of people and give them grace. Because I've received such grace, such undeserved kindness from God my Saviour. What about the bully? Well, you know you answer to a higher power than the senior person in the workplace. And you know that your life is safe with Christ on high. That gives you the dignity not to cower and be afraid before bullies, but also not to hate them and to dismiss them. To be a person who exhibits grace under pressure. Because you know what? I can be a bully too. But I know that no one is beyond redemption. God has saved even the chief of sinners. And in the end, God will be the one that sorts out right from wrong. It's not for me to do that. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty has accomplished it. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father in heaven, our hearts yearn for peace when we think about it when we're stirred out of our complacency and our our, uh, preoccupation with with ourselves and with leisure, we realize that we really need peace. We want to be right with people. We want life to be harmonious and whole. And we we have these amazing words here, you promise peace through Jesus. Thank you that it's already happening. Thank you that we can be transformed, every one of us in our hearts. Help us, we pray, Lord Jesus, to be people of peace, to be those who live for you, 
who love you and love others. And would you change our world and our city, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.